3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. It is the 25th of March and the clock has just ticked over to 704 Good morning, Priya. Good morning, Rosie. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> How is it already almost the end of March? I feel like this year has just flown by. Um, it feels like, and it feels like so much has already happened this year as well, as is evidenced by the stuff that we have on today, talking about the eviction ban, talking about changes to job maker, um, sorry, to job keeper and job seeker, and then this job maker inquiry. There's just so much happening. Um, yeah. It is going to be a huge show today. I'm really excited. Mm. Always a huge show. <laughs> always a huge show. That's, why people, that's why people tune in. It's for the huge shows. Um, so shall we jump into the rundown? What do we have on for today? So um, earlier this week, I spoke to Jack, who is a delegate from the Renters and Housing Union, uh, to provide an update about the eviction moratorium, which currently prevents landlords in Victoria from evicting tenants for rental arrears. Um, after that, I'm going to speak to Kristen O'Connell, who's the spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, and Kristen's going to join us to discuss the JobMaker hiring credit and the end of the JobKeeper wage subsidy, which is on the 31st of March, um, and the COVID supplement, uh, which also ends on the same date, in light of the current Senate inquiry into job security. And then I'm going to speak to Eugene Yunam Chung, and he joins us to discuss Decolonial Hacker, which is um, a institutional critique platform, and he's the uh, founding editor, so it'll be really exciting to speak to him about that. Yeah, and then last start, we're going to be speaking with Evelyn Araluen, who is a poet, researcher, and co-editor of the Overland Literary... Liter- I'm really bad with my words this morning. Sorry, everybody. Overland Literary Journal. She's been awarded the Nakata Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers, the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, and a Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship. Evelyn was born and raised on Darug Country, and she descends from the Bundjalung Nation. She joins us today to speak about her debut collection of poetry, Drop Bear. Exciting. So exciting. So um, I think that we can go straight into our interview with Jack. Here it is. Today on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, I'm joined by Jack on the line, who is a delegate from the Renters and Housing Union, and we're going to be speaking about the possible ending of the moratorium um, on housing evictions. Thanks, Jack, for joining us today on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. No worries. Thanks so much for having me on. So uh, we were going to be speaking about the potential ending of the moratorium on housing evictions, um, but you've also just got some updated news from the Victorian government where they have released some new regulations. So, yeah, do you want to start by telling us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we were all ready and 
uh, you know, getting prepared for the moratorium on evictions for the inability to pay rent to end on the 29th of March. Uh, it was originally uh, extended from September last year until March this year. Um, and that eviction moratorium has been, it seems, extended. Uh, the announcement was made yesterday. Uh, and it looks like if your circumstances were impacted by COVID or if you're in severe hardship, uh, you will not be able to be evicted. Uh, you'll not be made to pay lease break fees if you need to leave a lease. Uh, and VCAT will be dealing with a lot of the disputes that were previously being dealt with by the Residential Dispute Settlement Scheme and the Chief Dispute Resolution Officer. So there's at least 60 days additional time uh, before the end of dispute orders. Uh, measures from the COVID-19 moratorium on eviction for inability to pay rent. Uh, quite a few of those have been extended. Uh, landlords can't apply for warrants of possession of the home uh, and any notices to vacate uh, where the grounds of that notice are the un, uh, unpaid rent are invalid and they can be referred to VCAT and tenants cannot be blacklisted uh, for failing to pay rent at the moment. So that's been continued. Uh, it looks like until September. So it's really, really fantastic. We're very excited about hearing this. Mm. And yeah, the moratorium on evictions has um, been in place since the 29th of March 2020, so last year. Um, can you talk a little bit about if this has actually worked in practice over the last year? Yeah, definitely. So it certainly has worked for a lot of people in practice. There are a lot of people who are still in their home because of this eviction moratorium. Uh, a lot of people who despite not being able to pay the rent, uh, have been able to keep a roof over their heads throughout that time rather than ending up homeless or, you know, in sort of secondary homelessness, couch surfing, sleeping in cars, etc. Um, so in a lot of ways, it has been extremely helpful. Uh, there have been some issues, though, however, in that landlords and real estate agencies have been trying their darndest to find loopholes in these rules. Uh, there have been a lot of illegal notices to vacate that have been issued, even though that is not allowed underneath uh, the COVID-19 bill. Um, and there have been attempts on uh, a lot of... Sorry, there have been quite a few attempts to evict people or convince them to self-evict, which is essentially uh, when people are convinced or decide that it's too difficult to fight back uh, and just decide to move house, uh, whether or not that is something that they genuinely have the capacity to do or not. So it's been quite good in a lot of ways, but there have been a lot of issues with, yeah, landlords and real estate being sneaky, trying to get around the rules uh, and trying to sort of exploit the fact that people don't always know their rights and they don't always know what they're entitled to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean... Just renting um, is so tricky, and I know that I myself also just pay one of my housemates, and so I'm technically not on the lease. So <laughs> um, I know that a lot of people are in that situation, and it's really difficult to know if you're not on the lease, um, yeah, like what your rights are for renting. 
Can you speak a bit about Rahu's um, recently released Roofs for Ransom report that really details some of the hardships facing renters during this first year of the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been compiling a lot of data from various sources. We also surveyed quite a number of renters as well. Uh, over the pandemic, we found that uh, you know, a huge number of people were being forced to choose between things like paying for shelter, paying the rent, and their other needs like food, uh, healthcare, medication, uh, bills, etc. Um, just as I mentioned before, quite a quite a number of people have also self-evicted um, due to the rental stress and the pressure that was being exerted on them, often illegally, by real estate agents and landlords. Um, and we saw just a couple of stats, you know, over over the COVID-19 period, nearly half of the respondents to our survey were in some kind of debt, not including hex debt. Um, 41.6% uh, said that rent-related stress was affecting their well-being. Um, and then over a quarter of the respondents to the survey had to move out due to rental stress, even due to COVID-19, which a lot of these measures that were brought in this time last year, were actually intended to kind of stop a lot of that happening. You know, so we've had a lot of people uh, accruing a lot of debt. The original guidelines that were released by the government and uh, by Consumer Affairs were that uh, rent reductions should be negotiated between tenants uh, and landlords. In practice, that has often not been the case, and a lot of landlords are now demanding that renters pay rent arrears that they are saying have accrued during the COVID-19 period. Um, so people have been allowed to pay a lower amount of rent during restrictions especially, and now uh, landlords are trying to collect on that rent. And a lot of the time what we're seeing is that that is just not going to happen. It's like getting blood from a stone, you know. The money is simply not there, um, especially given the... Uh, previous and future cuts to the coronavirus supplement that was added to uh, JobSeeker and the ending uh, of the JobKeeper program as well. So there's a huge number of people. Uh, there was a report by another organisation, Better Renting, that uh, suggests that up to a million renters across the country are at risk of eviction uh, due to the ending of eviction moratoriums and other kind of temporary measures. So... We've had a temporary kind of reprieve from uh, the issues that can come with the inability to pay rent, uh, but we're really concerned that we need to keep fighting for that. We need to make sure that people know their rights. Um, and this, uh, you know, this announcement from the state government is a really good step in the right direction. Um, I think what it really shows is that when we fight, we win, but we need to keep up that fight because this is sort of just the beginning and there's a lot more to keep going and keep doing after that. Mm, absolutely. And, yeah, I know that um, Rahu at the moment has really been fighting against the end of the eviction moratorium, but can you speak a little bit about some of the other work that Rahu's also been involved in in supporting renters over this pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So Rahu was formed... Uh, nearly a year ago, out of the rent strike effort. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is that we realised 
that people need a sort of ongoing and more robust kind of infrastructure to support them, make sure that people know their rights and, and you know, are able and have a framework in which to show their solidarity to one another. Um, so our main three demands for the Victorian government uh, up until now have been we want a cancellation of rental debt, we want no more evictions, and we want an extension of rental protection. Uh, and the way that we've been fighting for that is we have been assisting some renters on a case-by-case basis with things like VCAT applications, understanding the legal documents uh, that they might be sent or that they might need to be able to interpret in order to navigate systems like VCAT, consumer affairs, etc. Um, and trying to equip people with the skills to navigate those themselves and assist other people around them with that. Uh, and we've been recruiting a lot of people, trying to get the word out there that we exist uh, and that it is possible to, you know, act collectively as renters and people in precarious housing um, to fight for housing as a human right, not just not just housing as a, as a commodity, as a kind of a financial sort of object or a financial sort of, um, you know, benefit for people that own a lot of housing, uh, but it's something that's really fundamental to keeping people safe, keeping people healthy, um, and and as well as ensuring the safety and the health of you know society more broadly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Housing is a human right. Um, and where can people find out more about Rahu and any upcoming actions that you're facilitating? Absolutely. So they can head to our website, rahu, R-A-H-U, dot org, dot A-U, forward slash join uh, to join the union. Uh, rahu.org.au is our website. Uh, we're on all the social media, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, usually under RAH Union. Uh, and we are having an action coming up this weekend. So Sunday at 12 p.m. we'll be meeting on the steps of state parliament uh, to call on the state government to not just extend the eviction moratorium for now, uh, but to also, you know, continue to fight for uh, protections for renters on an ongoing basis. So we need a cancellation of that rental debt. Uh, we need an extension of protections for renters. Um, and we're going to keep pushing for, you know, the, the ability for all of us to live in a society where people don't fear eviction just because they're facing financial insecurity. Um, so we're going to keep fighting, going to keep pushing uh to make sure that people are not going to be in debt for years. Um, and, uh, you know, we want to have a society where we have housing as a guarantee. I, I like to say that housing is like cake at a birthday party because uh, it's very basic. Everyone understands that everybody gets some before anyone gets seconds. Um, and I think if that's such a basic principle that a five-year-old can understand it, I don't see why that can't apply to housing. So we're going to keep fighting, and as we have showed in the last couple of days, uh, when we fight, we can actually win. Thank you so much, Jack, um, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, and all the best with the um, action on the weekend. Thanks very much.
and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and you just heard an interview that Carly did earlier this week with Jack, who's a delegate from the Renters and Housing Union, and Jack provided an update about the eviction moratorium, which prevents landlords in Victoria for evicting, uh, from evicting tenants for rental arrears. And now we're going to head into a new track from Imbi and Slimset. This one is Heat Sink.
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. They call me fanatic, they call me absurd The people of plastic out there in the world I live in asylums, I'm caught in a trap Won't you free me from my
I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And we're back on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, and you just heard the songs Heat Sink by Imbi and Slimset, followed by Bones by Telenova. Now we're going to go to an interview with Kristen O'Connell, who's a spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, who's joining us to discuss the JobMaker hiring credit and the end of the JobKeeper wage subsidy and COVID-19 supplement in light of the current Senate inquiry into job security. So Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Priya. Great to talk to you. So I know this sounds like a bit of an ambitious set of topics to cover, but I thought, you know, they all sort of link into each other. Um, maybe we can start with the job maker hiring credit. So that started on the 7th of October 2020, I believe. Um, could you tell us a bit about what it is and how it's functioned in practice and the kinds of issues that it's caused? Absolutely. So the JobMaker hiring credit um, conveniently started at the same time as uh, unemployment payments were being cut by about $200 a week by the government. And funnily enough, the JobMaker hiring credit put $200 a week, or it was intended to put $200 a week, in the pockets of employers um, to incentivise them to hire people on unemployment payments. Um, so the plan essentially was to take money from poor people and give it to bosses. Um, that plan has catastrophically failed, um, as we said in our um, submission to the Senate inquiry at the time. Um, wage subsidies are well and truly proven not to work in terms of um, getting new people hired. Things like JobKeeper can work quite well because people are already in employment and really you're just maintaining those jobs. But to actually like create new jobs, wage subsidies are pretty... Um, you know, they're known to fail. So we've got the restart program has already been in place for people in their 50s and older for a long time. Um, and so has the PATH program for young people. And both of those are really undersubscribed. And we've now seen an even more drastic failure with the JobMaker hiring credit, which has only had about 600 people put into work since October. The plan was for it to have about 400,000 jobs subsidised through this program although the Treasury did say that it could be as few as zero to 40,000 jobs that would actually be new. So, yeah, it's a bit of a disaster. It means that there's $4 billion sitting there budgeted for it that should be going to keep about 400,000 people um, out of poverty, uh, but instead the budget is going to have a little saving in it for the Treasurer. Yeah, I mean, I feel like even even for zero to 40,000 people, four uh, $4 billion, uh, sounds like a lot of money that could be spent on... So many things required with our social security net, with providing people with adequate housing. You know, there there are lots of very urgent expenses to, to actually keep people alive um, that potentially could have been uh, funded by this, this program, which is clearly not doing the job that it's meant to. Um, so I guess maybe we can then turn to these sort of precarious and, and underemployment issues um, 
because it's not being solved by the job maker hiring credit. And um, I know that the Australian Unemployed Workers Union represents a lot of people that are in um, precarious or unsafe or unsuitable work conditions or, or forced to apply for those kinds of conditions. So um, could you maybe weigh into some of those concerns around both the credit and um, the job keeper payment as well, which I know is set to expire on the 31st of March? Yeah, that's right. So um, there's a lot of problems with the interaction between our welfare system and low-wage um, and insecure work. So, for example, this hiring credit that they proposed was not requiring anyone to create an ongoing job um, and you could access the wage subsidy for giving someone only 20 hours a week of work. And under our current um, arrangements, if you're doing about 30 hours a week of work at the minimum, at the minimum wage, you're still below the poverty line and you're still accessing an unemployment payment. So you're getting pretty close to full-time employment, but the jobs are so bad um, that you still can't really, you don't have enough money to survive. Um, so again, the job maker hiring credit wasn't going to help that. Um, as you said, we have lots and lots of members in this situation. People end up in fairly steady employment, getting hours over a long period of time, but never managing to kind of get their way out of poverty or out of these bad jobs. Because the welfare system um, has a couple of things in it. One, you're in such deep poverty that you're desperate to get any kind of job, regardless of the wages or conditions. So people are taking dangerous work. They're taking underpaid work and they're allowing employers, um, by not enforcing you know, wages and conditions, they're allowing employers to kind of drive down wages by forcing people at the bottom to compete for these jobs. Um, so desperately. And then on top of that, job agencies can essentially force you into bad jobs and they often collude with dodgy employers to do this. So um, if you say no to a job, then you can lose your payment. Um, it is up to the job agency to essentially decide whether your payment gets suspended and then you can appeal um, to make sure that your payment comes back. But yeah, you're often if you are... Um, wanting to turn down work, then you be, will be threatened um, in order to keeping that job. And that's because job agencies get paid by placing people in work. Um, and also in many cases, like with the PASS program, the employer gets paid as well. And it really, I think it's topical this week to talk about the fact that this means we have lots and lots of women being stuck in workplaces where they do not feel safe, where they may be um, subject to sexual harassment or um, sexual assault, and because they will lose their unemployment payment if they leave that job, they feel trapped. Um, and of course, it you know is wider than that. People get bullied um, and mistreated in all sorts of ways, and have no way out because of the welfare system and how it's designed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the point around how this is hitting women in particular is is just so important to emphasise because I think you know there is not. I mean. You know, when, when when you hear the the federal government put out particular sort of platitudes around um, supporting women and supporting women's rights, um, you know, without making tangible action, these are some of the places where where women feel it the most. You know, um, around issues of unemployment uh, payments and accessing employment, accessing safe employment, um, and as you mentioned, accessing secure employment that you know doesn't result in the majority of the kickback going to um, a job. Uh, agency or to the employer themselves. So um, I was also wondering if you could speak a little bit more to how this um, 
you know, the, the government's various programs that they're trying to use to incentivize people to enter the, the labor force, but are obviously the, the incentives are growing elsewhere, um, interact with the mutual obligation scheme? Mm. Um, yeah, so sort of as I was indicating, the mutual obligations, there's so many requirements, but it's um, a really useful lever to those dodgy job agencies and employers to force people into um, really bad work, um, and also, it puts a whole lot of onerous requirements on people that don't get them jobs, um, do get the employment agencies money, um, and many employers as well, depending on the programs they participate in, but also really hold people back. And what we heard last year when these mutual obligations weren't in place is that people were finding they were better equipped to look for work. So they had the time to actually find jobs that were suitable for them instead of just scrambling to fill, you know, this wild quota of 20 job applications a month. Um, people were finding if they didn't really see a lot of jobs that fit their skills or their experience level, that they had more time to try and develop their skills so they would be, um, you know, able to get those jobs uh, in future. Um, people just felt less stress and less anxiety. One thing about mutual obligations is it means you're forced to interact with, the, with these job agencies, which really are incentivized to have an awful culture, and it results in widespread bullying and harassment and threatening of unemployed people. So you can see, again, it's not just the incredibly low payment um, that forces people into jobs that aren't good jobs and that aren't going to give them any ability to plan for their future, but we've also got, um, you know, people just being worn down by the system and desperate to get out of these situations. It also means that lots of people fall out of the welfare system altogether, even if they haven't found a job. Um, and again, this is just the government trying to find budget savings off the backs of the poorest people in society. Um, we know that when people do fall out of the system, it creates strain on their people in their life. So if you're... Um, you know, living with someone who is also on low wages or your family don't have a great deal of money but you aren't in the welfare system at all, that means everyone's straining um, to try and cover your costs and keep you going. So, yeah, there's so many negative effects to mutual obligations. Um, and also, I just, to go back to your previous question, we're actually now going to see a huge uh, increase, well, we're worried we're going to see a huge increase in the number of people coming into the system. And at the same time, in the next month or so, we're going to start seeing people pushed into programs like Work for the Dole, um, like PASS, which is targeting young people. And these are the most extreme parts of the system where you're forced to do um, unpaid work or very uh, low-paid work. And again, employers are getting paid money to take people in those situations. They're getting free labour. And at the end of the day, most of the people forced into this situation learn nothing um, and they don't get a job out of it. Yeah, it seems, um, you know, it seems like a system that really feels like it's geared to fail. Um, and something that you, well, what you were talking about then about, uh, you know, the the soon to be reduced payments for both the, the JobKeeper wage um top up and the job seeker covid supplement which has already been reduced they both end on the 31st of march and you've you've suggested that um, it's highly likely that people will be entering the system on this but i think it's also really useful again and i know i know we've discussed this before but to to look at that distinction that government continues to make between the notion of the deserving and undeserving poor here um, and the way that they um, invest 
in particular kinds of programs that are targeted towards people that um, they assume uh, should be entering the workforce rather than supporting people to all have a good quality of life, regardless of whether or not they are in the workforce as it currently stands. That's right. And you'll hear it from the government all the time that this is supposed to be a temporary payment. And so somehow that justifies them throwing people down to half the poverty line um, when we know that it's, you know, it's not easy to live on the poverty line, let alone on half of it. And so they're essentially saying that uh, we're not designing this system for anyone to actually have to sustain themselves over the long term. But the average length of time on the payment has now blown out to four years, and it just shows what a failure the entire system is. Again, living in poverty traps you in the system because it makes it harder to get work. Mutual obligations trap you in the system because they get in the way of you finding work and don't help you get work at all. But they target these programs that I talked about, work for the doll, pass, um, training programs. They force older people to do very large hours of volunteering, so just another form of free labour. And they target that at longer-term unemployed people, whereas recently unemployed people don't have to do those things. Now, we don't think anyone should have to do those things, so we're certainly not arguing that someone who's um, been unemployed for a shorter time should have to have more earnest requirements. Um, but we're also hearing mumbling, uh, rumblings now about programs that are really scary, uh, like unemployment insurance, where we've got a proposal to government that people who are recently unemployed should get paid up to 80% of their wage um, for six months if they earn up to $200,000 a year, which is just an extraordinary sum of money, whilst at the same time, um, again, keeping hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in deep poverty when it's not people's fault that they don't have paid work. Absolutely. And um, as I mentioned earlier on, the uh, there, there's a Senate inquiry right now into job security and submissions, I think, are due by the, is it by the 31st as well? That's right. And we're going to be talking about the fact that it is, um, it's unconscionable that we've got people in waged work who are trapped on unemployment payments. The, and as I've already kind of talked about, the interaction between those payments and how they force people into these jobs. The fact that it should be the responsibility of employers to give the vast majority of people steady employment. And there are some situations where someone may only want a few hours of work a week, but that should not be the majority of our workforce. And we're seeing you know, hundreds of thousands of the jobs that have come back since the pandemic has sort of started to slow down are really um, part-time, casual jobs. The full-time jobs are not coming back. And so we're going to have a whole group of people who may never get into secure employment again. So that's the kind of issues we're going to be raising in the job security inquiry. And we're going to be asking for the government to create rules that protect workers. Absolutely. And I strongly encourage people to keep an eye on submissions there, um, you know, have a, have a look at how that inquiry plays out and, and pay more attention to, to the work that the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, but also other unions like United Workers Union and RAFWU are doing um, on this issue, because it is it is so important to listen to people that are going to be most affected by these, um, you know, proposed changes that, that government's going to bring in or try to bring in. Um, so just to wrap up, Kristen, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, yeah, so we're on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, we've got really great communities there. Um, our website, if you want to join the union, it's free for everyone to join, whether you're in wage work or not. Um, we have a solidarity membership for wage workers. And as I said, it's free. So go to 
um, auwu.org.au. And as I said, find us on social media. Um, If you ever need support dealing with a job agency or have questions about your experience in the welfare system, you can contact us on all those platforms um, and we'll provide you with support and advice about how to protect yourself and assert your rights. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kristen, and all the best with finishing up that submission. Great. Thank you, Priya. Thank you, Priya. And uh, you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was an interview with Kristen O'Connell, who's a spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, who joined us to discuss the JobMaker hiring credit and the JobKeeper and COVID-19 supplement payments in light of the current Senate inquiry into job security. And now I think it's time to head into a track. So this one is Two Lovers by Tia Glosko.
The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force Yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellows learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.
Eugene Yu Nam Chung joins us to discuss decolonial hacker. Eugene is a writer based in Berlin. His work has appeared in Art in Australia, The Griffith Review, The Saturday Paper, Running Dog, and PW Magazine, among others. Eugene is the co uh, sorry is the founding editor of the institutional critique platform Decolonial Hacker and a curatorial assistant at the Ju- Julius Stoschek Collection in Berlin. Welcome, Eugene. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, so just to begin, could you tell us a little bit about the platform and how it works? Basically, I guess, what is Decolonial Hacker? Uh, yeah, for sure. So Decolonial Hacker is a kind of a, a twofold project. Um, it has, uh, as its, I guess, its primary function. Um, it's a publication. So um, I commission um, pieces of written criticism about institutions um, and that gets uploaded onto um, a website, and that is also synced to a web browser extension that you can download for Google Chrome and Firefox. And what happens there is once you download the extension and you go on, say, um, the NGV's website, and there's a piece of criticism that I published about the NGV, the web page will sort of dissolve or annihilate itself, and then in the place of the institutional website is the piece of criticism. Sounds so great. And I'm just introduced, uh, sorry, interested in the idea of, yeah, the hacker part of the platform, which I guess is this annihilation that you're talking about. Why were you interested yeah. in this um, hacking rather than, you know, just publishing essays on a separate website? I think that, um, I mean, that's a great question because I've, I, I've, I've thought about this as well in terms of um, differentiation and, and what, what I'm doing and how it or what the sort of the decolonial hacker platform is doing that's different to what's already there. I think the hack comes from this idea that it's, um, I guess, a bit more entrenched into the everyday practices of people using the internet. I think that, you know, when it comes to things like institutional critique, um, people tend to sort of release one big piece of criticism or, you know, criticism comes out, it causes a bit of a, a bit of a stir, but then it sort of dissipates. It's kind of like a, like a bee sting. I always say, like, you know, a a bee stings and it dies and you sort of wonder when the next sting is going to be. And I guess the platform sort of encourages you to have this extension so that it just comes up more more often than, say, um, or unexpectedly, I suppose, um, if that makes sense. Um, And I guess the hacking is, I'm not sure if it's like, if it's the correct word, um, funnily enough, I think that the, it's because it's not a proper hack, right? It's like, you know, using a web browser extension to sort of infiltrate a museum. But it's the closest word that, I guess, approximates the feeling of, of the activism, which I'm trying to do. Um, yeah, so, totally. Yeah, you know, and I, I feel I, like I, it's... It. Yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt. You know, it feels like interesting because uh, whoever's reading or has put that web, uh, the web browser extension onto their computer is also, you know, um, kind of colluding or collaborating with your hacking of the institutions as well. Um, I yeah, just want- like you have to, you have to, con- yeah, sorry, I was just no. saying, so you have to, yeah, cons- you have to, um, yeah, you, you, you give consent, um, as a person using the, the extension that like you consent to be, you know, a, a conspirator in this way as well. So it's not, um, you know, you, it's forced onto you. You've made the active choice to, to have this thing on your, on your browser. Absolutely. And I just wanted to ask you a bit about your editorial. Um, it was titled, it's titled No Dignity in Resignation, and it's the first piece of writing that you've published on Decolonial Hacker. Um, there was a quote from it that was, we see the idea of annihilated institution as aspirational. Could you just explain what you mean um, by this? You spoke about annihilation a little earlier, um, but also what the political aims of this project are? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the, I guess, I guess the quote should be read in context as well, because the second part of that quote, I think I go on to say that, you know, we're, we're also receptive to, um, and mindful of the, hurdles that that come with wanting to annihilate an institution you know it's great to speak in these kind of big political statements and gesture towards you know um destroying the institution and sort of making it um better from a new but i also think that there's a there's a pragmatic side to it you know an operational side of course we're not going to through writing at least just writing itself um destroy an institution but this idea of annihilation is something which should always be read in context with you know um uh you know building with i don't know it's it's it the editorial is weird because i when i was writing it i and this was a line that i stumbled i stumbled a lot with actually because i want to annihilate but i also want to build with there are certain aspects of an institution that I want to destroy. For instance, there, um, uh, I guess, or call into question, not, not, not necessarily destroy immediately, their, their labor practices, their colonial lineages, um, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, helping the institution, um, yeah, le- learn with this process. So there's a, there's a simultaneous destruction as well as a simultaneous creation. Totally. I think that building idea of building is so important. And I guess you're kind of building, uh, a, a parallel or some sort of parasitic maybe um, community alongside, which isn't... Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, could you tell us a bit about where the project came from, like how it developed how it developed out of your own thinking, or I don't know if it was a collaborative process um, or political practices that you were engaged in? Yeah, I mean, the, the project began last year in May. Um, there was a call out uh, from New York, from an from a, a institution called iBeam, and they work with, you know, this kind of, you know, quote unquote, uh, intersection between art and technology. And they had this call out for um, this grant. They were giving, I think, 25,000 US dollars out for a project that um, could try to dismantle or would start to th- think about dismantling surveillance capitalism, um, which is a term that Shoshana Zuboff um, famously coined. Um and uh, a friend sent that to me, and I guess it, I, I was sort of building from that, thinking, you know, how how can we, um, you know, how 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 can we use the existing infrastructure to, I don't know, b- build something different. I, I mean, uh, yeah, it's it's a tricky question, you know, the thinking around the project because I. I wanted originally to um, uh, build uh, the internet, like build a separate internet, which turned out to be a, a, a far greater task than I could imagine. I actually have no technical skills in um, building any of this infrastructure. I have, I have to thank um, uh, Caspian Basco, the developer, and also Joan Shin, who's the, the front end developer and visual designer, for helping me with that. But um, it was collaborative in that sense. I got the three, three of us got together and sort of worked out the nuts and bolts of it. And then, um, yeah, sort of been working on it consistently for the last year to get it to where it is now. That's so great. And I also saw on the um, website that you're also accepting pitches currently from writers writing on um, any cultural institution in the world, I believe. So what are you looking for yes. and how can people pitch? Um, yeah, it's, it's it's funny because I actually was having a, a team meeting about this. Um, I think a couple of days, yeah, a couple of days ago, and uh, we, I think that the the language that has been used to get the pitches needs to be a little bit more, I guess, specific because we've been getting really great things. Yeah, um, yeah, the the the, the language is is 
is a bit broad, you know, a cultural institution. A lot of people have taken that as a prompt to talk about, you know, restaurants which have formed them and their community, as well as, you know, we've got um, people wanting to talk about unions. We've got people talk, wanting to talk about, you know, these these um, sort of, I guess, things that are removed from um, the visual arts sector or the, mu- or the museum sector. Um, and I think that um, those are great, but at the, at the moment what I'm sort of uh, thinking about platforming as things to do more more to do with the fine arts just um that's sort of the 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 ambit of the project um in terms of the funding that that we've gotten that that's what we have to deliver um and uh yeah i mean in terms of pitching you can send an email straight to to me at eugene.decolonialhacker.org um and yeah, I mean, it's it's a strange one because I, I think down the track we'd be open to 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 writing or to writing about cultural institutions, I guess, a bit more generally. But for now, we're really, I guess, looking at um, uh, yeah, opera houses, museums, galleries, places which are you know cultural institutions in a more sort of museological sense, if I can frame it that way. Totally. I mean, there's enough problems to focus on there, right? So you've got plenty of material to work with. Um, finally, yeah, I just wanted sure. to ask yeah. you about um, how, if people wanted to get the web browser and find Decolonial Hacker, how could they um, find you? They can find us uh, at decolonialhacker.org, um, and you can. There's links to the extension there uh, for uh, Google Chrome and Firefox. Um, but also, if you go on the Chrome and Firefox stores separately. Um, you can just type in Decolonial Hacker in it and it should come up, I think. That's so great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eugene. Yeah, thank you, Rosie. And that was Eugene Yunam Chung joining us to discuss the institutional critique platform Decolonial Hacker. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, and we're going to head into a track now by Emily Wuramara. This one is Cruisin'. 
To our favorite song, to you all night long, and it's night time. Catch another break and unwind. I'll be there with you, with you, real soon. Is your night going? How is your world shining? Does it win? Does it how? Does it blow just for you? I won't refuse nothing, and I won't abuse nothing. Will I ever get the chance to know the real you? I'm cruising, packing up our bags, we're moving, listening to our favorite song. Another break and unwind. I'll be there with you.
Picking up our bags, we're moving. Listening to our favorite song. To you all night long. And it's night time. Catch another break and unwind. I'll be there with you. With you. Real soon. And that was Cruisin' by Emily Waramara. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I just wanted to let people know that this past Sunday, the 21st of March, from 12 to 7 p.m., we had a special uh, binary busting broadcast on 3CR. And now the podcasts are up and available to listen to. And we've also got transcripts available for most of those um most of the segments that were on for that day and some transcripts still coming. So if you need that for access reasons, those are available on the website and you can listen back to the podcast on www.3cr.org.au slash binary busting. Evelyn Araluen is a poet, researcher and co-editor of the Overland Literary Journal. She has been awarded the Nakata Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, and a Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship. Evelyn was born and raised on Darug Country, and she descends from the Bunjilung Nation. This morning, she joins 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast to speak about her new collection of poetry, Drop Bear. Welcome, Evelyn, and thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So, your collection is titled Drop Bear, and I personally really admire your subtle humour in your collection amidst uh, reckoning with really violent topics like imperialism and colonisation. And you have a poem in the anthology titled Drop Bear Poetics, where you draw on fictional colonial characters like Blinky Bill, and you beautifully weave in conceptions of Indigenous sovereignty against white settler nationalism. So I'm interested in what you, uh, drew you to drop there for the title of your collection. Yeah, um, and thank you for those very beautiful comments. Um, so I'm not entirely sure about where exactly the language of like drop bears specifically entered all of my thinking about this project, but it was like really, really early along. The poem Drop Bear Poetics is, is one that I wrote a couple of years ago before I really thought about like a longer collection around these ideas. Um, and it just struck me the whole time that there is just this strange um, cryptomythology around the ways in which settler colonial Australia approaches its own ideas of like haunting and ghostliness. And so mm. the drop there is this weird in-between idea of something that is simultaneously assumed to be native, even though we actually, like, there's no Aboriginal stories of drop bears or anything of the like, but is also so international in the way that we kind of use this idea of the drop bear, this joke of the drop bear, to terrorise tourists and and people who are, you know, overseas and hearing strange stories about terrifying Australia. So, I don't know, I just, I was drawn to the notion of something that is liminal and between and ultimately functions as a way of kind of terrorizing people um so that was a weird kind of avatar for me and for any kind of idea of haunting throughout the book Mm, which yeah you definitely draw on quite a lot um in your collection 
You clearly love birds. Um, your poems have dotted throughout them wattlebirds, currawongs, magpies, lyrebirds, kookaburras. Um, where does your love from, of birds come from? So that is like, thank you for asking me that question because that's a very attentive and lovely question to ask. Um, I, uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time around people who have incredibly special relationships with birds. And, you know, when you're an Aboriginal person, you're always raised knowing that, like, birds have this very close communication and relationship with spirits and ancestors. And you have, like, a very subtle respect for that. Um, and you learn, like, different roles of birds. But, um, yeah, for me, like, I don't know, I've just, I've always loved the different ways in which there seem to be so many stories and personal feelings that people have about birds. Like some of the earliest dreaming stories I can remember being told were about like the lyrebird and about how, you know, why some birds are black and why some birds got their colours. And, um, you know, throughout my life I've just I've just met people, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, who have just had such deep and tender relationships with those you know, with with birds and different birds in specific. So I really enjoyed, I, I love writing about what other people love and and my love of those people through those things. So that be, did become like a bit of a running theme throughout. But um, yeah, I, I, was, I had no idea anybody picked that up. So thank you. That's very exciting to me. <laughs> Yeah, actually, speaking of birds, my because I'm Wangi and Chinese, so my family come from the Gulf country. Um, oh, and Yeah, just thinking about it, yeah, now my great-great-grandmother, her name is Minnie Maibuyongji, and so Maibuyongji means um, black red-crested cockatoo. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're beautiful. They're such beautiful birds. And again, like, there's, like, really special and intimate relationships with ancestors and country and stuff. And, like, particularly black cockatoos, they're just, like, haunting and gorgeous. And it's so interesting to see the way that, like, settler colonists were, were also, like, struck by these amazing creatures, too. So, like, going back into journals, I'm weirdly resentful that they have this love as well, but it's so fascinating to read that there's like over 200 years of that kind of um, that kind of interest, even from the settler colonists and from all of these different voices that you don't always expect to be paying attention to the land in any regard. They're just kind of there to use it. Mm, mm. Um, and. In your collection, there's a real sense of reckoning with the present reality. Um, my favourite poem is Playing in the Pastoral, and I think there's this mantra and an ethos in Australia that pastoralists are farmers and that farmers in this country are always struggling and they're doing it tough and, you know, they're really benefiting the Australian citizen. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, like, how, through your poetry, do you try and grapple with the settler violence of pastoralism? Yeah, that's another thing that, um, you know, like so much of this collection is propelled by an attempt to give nuance to things that I, um, I either I love or I hate or I have like an incredibly problematic relationship with. So I do attempt to confront things no matter how complex they might be. So like I'm very open about the, you know, I, I, I live with my grandparents for a time on, on, their farm and it's something that I have a really intimate kind of nostalgic memory for but 
living there. Like I knew how violent and awful pastoralism is for our landscape. Um, you know, like hooves in particular are just like so destructive for our soil and there's a really long history of that in the region that I grew up in, the Hawkesbury, and the damage that the pastoral industry has done. Um, so I try to acknowledge, I do try to acknowledge that um, pastoralism will never be, um, uh, will never be able to be involved in the decolonisation um, of mm. the Australian landscape, alongside recognising that it is sad to see an area that, you know, you've grown up with or that you have a lot of um, love for, that connect, you have connections with, it is pretty sad to see it go from pastoralism to, like, suburbia, mm. knowing that they're both destructive forces, knowing that they're both, you know, really bad for the environment, but that you you still mourn the loss of something that you've known and that you've loved um so i just try to be honest about the um i try to be honest about the fact that i do have personal feelings tangled up in really awful harsh um harsh ways of mistreating the landscape and um i think that's important like i think we do have to be vulnerable about the different ways in which you know we are implicit in different problematics mm. Um, and now to another aspect of your collection. A number of the poems take on academic or institutional conventions. For example, Appendix Australia, Australis or Acknowledgement of Country, um, which is spelled C-U-N-T-E-R-Y. Um, and they're really different examples, but what does adopting this type of language allow you to do? Uh, so I did, I did use a bit of conceptual and academic language throughout the collection quite intentionally. Um, but then also in moments it crept in because I've, you know, I've been doing a PhD for forever and mm. like I'm also a researcher and a teacher and, um, I'm always just so struck about, struck on the ways that academic language is used to kind of legitimate or delegitimize knowledge. And I definitely had like this really petulant feeling throughout the book um, that I could say what I wanted to say poetically. I could say it honestly and from the heart and I could say it informed by storytelling, by elders, by culture, and they still wouldn't listen. And so a big part of um, my attempt to kind of use some of that language and those structures was to kind of ironise and undermine their validity and demonstrate that... Um, they aren't the authority. That's not the authoritative way to convey mm. information. Um, it's just the way that we are accustomed to um, structuring different arguments that are ultimately usually there to kind of speak over other people who don't have access to those systems and structures. So really badly misusing them throughout the collection is my subtle attempt to <laughs> undermine those things to hopefully get revenge for myself. <laughs> The foolish trying to do a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Evelyn, I was wondering if you would like to share a poem on air for listeners. Yeah. Um, well, I might. I might read Drop Air Poetics just because it was the first one you mentioned, and I think it's probably it probably summarizes the collection best. So um, yeah. So this one is Drop Air Poetics. Tidalix say, I'm such great surf. I will drain the land and drag my big fat belly across the empty sea. Bunyip say, I'm going to gobble you up if you step waters where I sleep 
and with wet claws I will snatch your spine and ankles to fill them with stain and stench. What the mopokes say don't need saying if you've grown up under his eyes. Now here's the part you write black snake down for a dilly of national flair. True God, you don't know how wild I'm going to be to every fucking postmod blinky bill trying to crack open my country. Mining in metaphors, that place you felt felt you. Somewhere in the Royal National. Wagon says he's hot, but I am rage and dreaming of the gloss green palm fronds of this gentry set antique. All this pot planting in our sovereignty, a garden for you to swallow speak our blood. If you're talking that talk, you've got to scrape it from my schoolhouse walls. Filter gollywog ashtray, snuggle pot kitchen to your pastoral deconstruct. Fill four and twenty pies with artisan magpies. If you sever their heads, you can wear them to the doof. I say rage and dreaming, for making liar the liar bird, for making my medic the power by army gave when Ribbon's mischief swallowed first life. Ochre dust, creation breath, ancestor song. We aren't here to hear you poem. You do wrong, you get wrong. You get gobbled up. Thank you so much for sharing that, Evelyn. Thank you so much for having me on. So lovely to talk to the collect about the collection. Somebody <laughs> read it and thought things about. It. <laughs> and how can listeners um, get a copy of Drop Bear? Uh, so Drop Bear's, I think, for sale in pretty much all bookshops at the moment around Melbourne. Um, but I would really encourage people to shop locally at their independent booksellers because that's. They've all taken a hit throughout COVID. Um, so if you, even if you can't get a copy through them uh, specifically, maybe ask if they'd like to order, if they have a website, order through that. And failing that, um, Booktopia uh, is a really good um, bookseller, online bookseller that supports independent sellers and supports the Australian publishing industry. Fantastic. And also, how can listeners um, stay up to date with your work? Uh, well, really the most... The best thing to do is to just follow me on Twitter or check out my Twitter account, which is at Evelyn Aralewin. But fair warning, I do occasionally, you know, get a, I go on some rants at like 3 <laughs> about once a month. So just mute me on that occasion and, and then check me out for anything else at the time. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Evelyn, for joining us this morning on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you so much for having me. Really lovely. And just then I spoke with Evelyn Araluen, who is a poet, researcher and co-editor of the Overland Literary Journal. And she joined us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast to speak about her debut collection of poetry, Drop Bear. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention, and sexual assault. For information, support, and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. We've got a common enemy. 
The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, and you are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we're coming up to the end of the show, so we might take you through a rundown of what you've heard today. So first of all, we heard an interview that Carly did earlier in the week with Jack, who's a delegate from the Renters and Housing Union, or RAHU, to provide an update about the eviction moratorium, which prevents landlords in Victoria from evicting, uh, sorry, evicting tenants for rental arrears. And after that, I spoke with Kristen O'Connell, who's a spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. And Kristen joined us to discuss the JobMaker hiring credit and the end of the JobKeeper payment, as well as the end of the COVID-19 supplement to JobSeeker in light of the current Senate inquiry into job security. And then I spoke with Eugene Yunam Chung to discuss uh, Decolonial Hacker, and Eugene is a writer based in Berlin. His work has appeared in Art in Australia, Griffith Review, The Saturday Paper, Running Dog, and others, and he's the founding editor of the institutional critique platform Decolonial Hacker. And then, just then, I spoke with Evelyn Araluen, who is a poet, researcher, and co-editor of the Overland Literary Journal. She's been awarded the Nakata Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers, the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, and a Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship. She was born and raised on Darug Country, and she descends from the Bundjalung Nation, and she joined us to speak about her debut collection of poetry, Drop Bear. And she spoke so absolutely beautifully. (laughs) Yeah, what a treat to get um, a live reading of poetry on air. So that's all we've got time for today. Thanks so much for joining us again on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and we'll catch you next week. See ya. See ya. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 
1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.